0: Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sidman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. This week on Battle Rhythm, here with Erin Gibson-Bronshaw, a professor and associate dean at uh, University of Calgary. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Erin. How are things out west?
1: They are excellent. It's uh first week of classes, so it's busy all across campus, but at least we've got good weather to welcome students back.
0: What is good fall weather for you? Is it you're already wearing pants and, and, and wearing heavy coats, or is it still pretty comfortable to walk around?
1: Well, actually, that's a good question, because it's always a challenge to figure out what to wear in the morning, because we've had lows of about eight when we wake up, and then it gets to about 25 or 26. So you have to dress for all temperatures when you live in Calgary every day.
0: It reminds me of going to grad school in San Diego, where I wear sweats uh, on the way into campus, and I peel them off as as the uh, fog or haze would burn off and get quite warm. Here in Ottawa, fall is starting to bite a little bit. The trees are just the color and now I have to wear socks
1: in the morning. Oh yeah, the socks. That's always a sign of fall, isn't it? It is. Socks
0: uh, and sandals. <laughs> no, I don't wear socks and sandals. No, Thank I'm you. not quite that much of a dad. So today we're going to have a, a bit of an Asia focus because our prime minister has been wandering through and then getting stuck in Asia with his trip to ASEAN meeting the Association of Southeastern Asian Nations. I remember the acronym correctly. And then a trip to India, where it's always uh, a tricky bit of uh, diplomacy there. But before we visit Asia, we should talk about how Asia has visited us, which is we now have an official announcement of a public inquiry into foreign election interference with a judge, a Quebec judge, named to be the... Commissioner, what, what I don't know what the, the inquirer and uh, the person running the show. How do you feel about this? Were you on the we must have a public inquiry side, or were you like, eh, the public inquiry not going to really tell us that much because it's all on the secret sauce side?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I'm a little bit of a fence sitter on this one in some ways that I like the idea in principle, I guess, of a uh, public inquiry, but. It's sort of like this notion of transparency and how much how much can you reveal in terms of what you're telling people in a public inquiry and how much want them to tell you in a public venue? So I feel that this this kind of public inquiry for this specific topic is a bit fraught with those mm. well, confidentiality issues, I suppose. but, you know, revealing secrets in a public forum—if that's—if that's what might happen—is is a bit problematic. So I I don't know if if it's going to be as successful or um, as useful an enterprise as has been touted to this point. But it, optically it looks good. I think mm-hmm. to to say that you're going to reveal what you know to the public, but I just don't know how much can actually happen.
0: Yes, uh, Quebec Court of Appeal Justice Maria Jose Hogue has no experience in this kind of stuff. No. Um, I don't think she's going to be revealing lots of secrets to us. The whole idea of this is that she gets to read the secrets and then she gets to tell us what she's found in terms of the problems without revealing the secrets. Mm -hmm. Um, And that means that because she will not be publishing reams and reams of classified information, that people are going to have to trust her that she's done the right thing that she's holding the government to account appropriately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess this will work better than David Johnston because uh, there was a lot of consultation with the opposition parties and the block, the NDP, the conservatives are all saying nice things about this choice. Now at the end, when they, when she makes a report, if the report isn't sufficiently brutal to the current government, then the opposition parties will say, well, you know, we wanted her, but she turned out to be a hack. And then, So they'll undermine the process. So one of the fundamental problems I have with Canadian politics is the quality of opposition. And and I would say that when the liberals were in opposition, they did the same stuff. So it's not about any individual party, it's about the opposition feels their duty is to oppose and just oppose, oppose, oppose without necessarily shedding any light or having reasonable criticisms. It just reminds me of the classic Monty Python sketch where one person says I did, and he did, and the other person says he didn't, and that's the extent of the argument. It's not really an argument. It's just uh, mindless gainsaying. So well, I think I'm wondering what the reaction will be by, by the parties if she is not sufficiently uh, critical of the government. Now maybe she's going to be sufficiently critical of government. The government may have messed this stuff up, but because we have this process where the parties, opposition parties, are just going to crap over any kind of report that isn't that hostile. I'm not sure that we're going to learn a whole lot by the end of this. I mean, I think is going to do a, a, a fine job with it. But then in terms of providing assurances to the Canadian public that this is investigated fairly, I have a feeling that, that the opposition parties are, are going to undermine that later on because it'll be completely politically convenient because there's an election coming up
1: yeah yeah i I agree. Like I don't think that it's a big deal that she doesn't have direct experience in this realm. The thing that I found a little bit disturbing at least as an academic is that you would have an interim report in February about six months, which to me is kind of a breakneck speed for this. but it sounds from the if she's able to use all the stuff that was collected by David Johnston in that report that maybe you know it's not quite starting from zero. And she'll be able to use the the data that's been collected, but it just seems like it's a fairly efficient timetable, if not overly enthusiastic.
0: Yeah, there's a whole lot of things to read, so I don't know how much is going to build on previous work. But an interim report can simply be I I haven't really found enough now. Give me more time, and we'll see. She has all of 2024, which yeah. puts us again very very close to the uh, next election, if the actual election doesn't happen early. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the timing of this is fortuitous for us and, and for the government, because when Trudeau went off on his trip to Asia, uh, he indicated he would raise the challenge of foreign interference by India, that the conversation in Canada is been mostly about China, but there's about a whole host of countries uh, interfering in our elections, apparently. Uh, Russia, India, Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, one could ponder about what you would call the impact of Fox News on Canadian elections. So... When you heard that uh, Trudeau was going to go raise this Modi, how concerned were you about
1: this? Well, I, I feel like there's may there is a duty to raise this if this has been identified as an issue in Canada, and it, it has by Jody Thomas among others. But at the same time, there's a you know a lot of talk about developing a positive relationship with India and, you know, positive economic relationships. So I on the one hand, it's difficult, I think, to navigate how you blame the or not blame. but you know, identify a serious issue with the purse or with the party that you or the country that you want to also embrace. So I, I think it's a bit of a a balancing act that that Trudeau and the Canadian government has to has to do going forward, and especially the complaints uh, of India that that Canada has not done enough to address the extremists in in our country as well against Sikhs.
0: Yeah, so there's 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 two halves of the well. There's many dimensions to this challenge with India. There is the the focus of Modi on this on Sikh separatism and what is the role of Canada and all of that. Then there's the foreign election interference, where I guess that India, where Modi and his folks are thinking that they want to support parties that are hostile to Sikhs in Canada. Good luck yeah. with that. And then there's other stuff too. I mean, the, the basic challenge is is that we want to have a good relationship with India because it wouldn't be easier and. Uh, to have our economy focused on selling selling stuff to India than to China. You know, you got a billion people in both countries, everybody's been talking about the Chinese market for years, but India is just as big a market, and it's probably the decline slower than China's. But that's all been hampered by all kinds of things, and Trudeau's visits to India have been problematic because uh, he's appointed Sikhs to high positions in his government, and the Hindu Nationalist Party of India is the party governing India at this point in time, and... And so they'd be hostile to Sikhs in any, in pretty much in any way, given the ethnic politics of India. But it's even more problematic when there is a history, but, you know, what, are, what is Canada supposed to do in this? We're not supposed to let people protest. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the challenge is that relations with India would be fraught even if there wasn't a, a party that was aspiring to be autocratic, leading the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Again, Modi's Hindu nationalist party is not just nationalist; it's also populist and autocratic in the same way as you know other other folks that we've been dealing with. And you know, we like to talk about how India is like the largest democracy in the world, but
1: unproblematic democracy,
0: unproblematic one, right? So yes, we have problems dealing. You know, we have problems dealing with Trump. We have problems dealing with Modi.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's hard to see how this will go smoothly. It Maybe is- getting stuck in 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 India will give him more time to work things I out. Know.
1: I wondered about that if that meant that there was more opportunities to meet and to chat, but I don't think being stuck in India means that there is more time spent with Modi.
0: Yeah. Yeah. More, I, I don't think I I don't think Modi's actually to spend time at the airport you know no. miserying with Trudeau as they're waiting for the, the new plane to come in to replace the one that was that was that was broken. I will say this, though, for the timing of all this, which is the government was getting some abuse for its latest uh, procurement of better planes for Mm. exactly the the planes they're buying were multi-purpose planes, partly for refueling, partly for reconnaissance, but partly for carrying delegations like this to far off locations. And it's always been kind of a weird thing that Canadian planes always have to land on Alaska to refuel before going all the way to Asia, as if this is like the 1970s. And now we have proof on the ground of a broken plane in India to suggest, yeah, we we really do need to have new planes. So there's a bit of defense procurement uh, story in this Mm -hmm. um, trip uh, to India. Anyway, back to the case of foreign election interference. I do think that it's interesting that India is now being talked about where the conservatives are just beating the drum about China, 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 China. As you've watched this, have you you know seen anything that has puzzled you, or some uh, dimensions that engage you on this?
1: I suppose they, I think that you're correct in saying that the you know we've had such a, a focus on China this whole time, uh, or, or not this whole time, but more recently. And so the expansion and recognition that foreign interference is not just emanating from one place and in one situation, but it really it needs to be on the radar um, as coming from a number of different sources at a number of levels as well, you know, from municipal elections to, to federal. So I I think it's, it's just interesting in that, you know, maybe the public is starting to perceive that this is not just a China problem and that, that we can expand that focus somewhat. So I I think that's just sort of spreading the, uh, enabling people to understand that it's, it's not just a, a China problem.
0: Yeah, it's not just a China problem, but that leads us to our next topic. Mm-hmm. which is the China problem. So yes. there was a meeting at the ASEAN summit, as I mentioned before, and China warned against a new Cold War that they want countries to appropriately handle differences and disputes. What does that make you think of? Uh,
1: it's interesting that they would be talking about the a new Cold War when they are trying to dictate everything that goes on in that Area, especially with regard to the South China Sea, I feel like often China makes kind of uh edicts or or pronouncements that everybody else should not do what they themselves are doing. And so they often are trying to garner power by usurping territory and that sort of thing. So, but it, I I feel like they're always advising others to not do as they do. So if there's any kind of cold war that's being generated, I'm sure that. They are the authors of that at this point.
0: It is interesting that over the past twenty years, uh, China has moved from you know rising with a sort of velvet glove to taking the gloves off and smacking everybody around with them. Mm-hmm. Um, to see appropriately handle differences of disputes, I can't help but think of the two Michaels. Right. That, that yes. China acted very coercively towards Canada over a legal dispute, and we treated the Huawei executive far better than China treated the two Michaels. So. It's a bit rich coming from China about that. But if we want to think a little bit more about what does what does the Cold War mean? You know, much of our audience was not alive during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it means alliance blocks facing off against each other. Yeah. And so one of the dynamics of the past few weeks, there was a meeting. Uh, there was a meeting a few weeks ago between the leaders of the United States, South Korea, and Japan, mm-hmm. where they basically cemented an alliance of a kind. It's not NATO, but it was significant because the American relations in the region have mostly been a series of bilateral uh, relationships. Because Japan and South Korea have long had problems dealing with their pasts. It was very, very hard for the United States to coordinate the, the two countries' relationships with the United States simultaneously. That is, to have tripartite meetings. That they had one is very suggestive, that the Japan and South Korea are putting aside some of their differences, not all of them, to confront the threat emanating from China. This is not aimed at Russia. This new alliance is not aimed at North Korea, although obviously the two countries have similar issues with North Korea. It's largely aimed at China. And so China is upset that its increased power and its increased bullying is causing countries to respond by aligning with each other. Well, that's That's just the the nature of international relations, that countries respond to threats by forming alliances against the greater threat. And so the more threatening China gets, the more you'll see those two countries allied with each other. AUKUS is also very much aimed at China. That is the the relationship between the Australians, the U.S., and the Brits. Mm -hmm. The Americans are building bases in Australia. The Australians are very happy to have them there. There are other countries in the middle in Southeast Asia that are trying to figure out whether to try to stay on the fence or to join one side or the other. Well, this is this is a cold war, right? This is right now nobody's fighting, but it's it's the tensions are higher. We're seeing the ships and planes confront each other that we're constantly seeing the chinese put their ships in the way of american canadian british whoever ships you know naval vessels to force confrontations they're buzzing our planes that's not new but they're doing more of it and the threat towards is is very strong and that the thing about this is when we talk about a new cold war well if we go back to before both of us were alive the Cold War really started over Berlin, which is what is the status of Berlin in the aftermath of, of World War II? It was divided hmm. between the West and the, and the Soviets. And so the Soviets kept on provoking confrontations to try to gain control over Berlin. And that led to a series of crises. And then the status quo eventually was recognized, but it took a long time to get there. And Taiwan kind of fits the same role of being both a test of resolution, but being also the a major objective of one side that the other side is trying to deny. So that's another Cold War resonance sequel. And another thing that we're not really talking about that much is that the United States is now trying to stop people from selling computer chips to China because China has been using those chips then to build other technologies, which they then sell to other countries with back doors built in so that the Chinese can get into them. And so the United States wants to develop independence from the Chinese production chain for chips. And that is not unlike the trade restrictions that happened during the Cold War, where many, many, many items that had dual use, that is could be used for both civilian and military products, were not uh, eligible to be sold to the Soviet Union, that there was a series of organizations to coordinate the refusal to sell all kinds of advanced technology to the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And I I remember this quite clearly because Toshiba got into trouble in the late 1980s because they had been selling technology that would make it, you know, make it easier for the, the, the Soviets to mill things more carefully. That is to make metal things that were smoother. And the importance of this was, It had a civilian use to it, but it was clearly being used by the Soviets to make their submarine propellers better so they'd be quieter, which would make them harder to find. And so Toshiba got sanctioned by the United States because they violated these kinds of restrictions. Well, we're now 40 years later and we're seeing some of the same kind of economic uh, tactics used by the United States to limit dual-use technology, essentially, by the, the Chinese. And now we're seeing a softer side of this. One of the stories that, that also came in the news this past week where there are Canadian pilots training Chinese pilots. Right. And that is disturbing us because it's causing us to think about how they're learning our tactics. They might be learning more about our technology, that we're having you know retired Canadian military officers sell out their knowledge for retirement benefits. Right? They're, they're getting money from the Chinese. And this is not just anything Americans, the British, the Australians, others have discovered that they've had their retired military officers, you know, sell their expertise to China. Mm-hmm. And that wouldn't be a problem if China wasn't the number one threat facing these countries, but it is. So it is a problem.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting. I just uh, was looking at the uh, description of ASEAN, if that's again, how you pronounce it. And it sort of made me think about how you, Frame alliance and a partnership or collaboration, but it and what the trickle down effect of being collaborators, let's say, in the economic sphere, what kind of impact does that then have for being? Allied in terms of justice or security issues, but th- this this definition suggests that there's a move to increase collaboration across a range of economic, social, cultural, technical, scientific, and administrative spheres. But my question would be, again, you know, if you are social allies or allied in the social sphere, what does that mean for being allies in the technical sphere? Because there, it's like an, a Venn diagram; there are sort of intersecting circles, but. I think there's a lot of especially today in today's complicated socio-political realm, you know, you can you just be economic partners or can you just be technical partners without having the impact in these other social and uh, economic realms. You know, it's it's complicated to to be allies and keep it to one realm without having an impact in other ways, I guess.
0: Well, that's the thing is that we had hoped that by trading with China over the past you know 30 years that mm-hmm. they, they would have to ultimately develop, you know become more democratic yeah. because you can't be authoritarian and have a vibrant democracy. And it turns out we were wrong about that. Um, that our trade relationship hasn't softened our other relationships and in fact, it's created uh, some real challenging in, you know interdependencies that have been weaponized by the, the Chinese that during the two Michaels uh, crisis, the Ch- Chinese government used that as they used all the tools at their disposal to create leverage. And a lot of that was our dependence on selling stuff to their markets and our dependence on some of their products. Mm-hmm. And so they weaponized the interdependence rather than the interdependence breeding peace and cooperation. And you raised something really important here, which is we had hoped that there'd be sort of a social and cultural convergence mm-hmm. where we'd understand each other. But what the Chinese government, I think, saw instead was a threat to their political system. That is, by us wanting to export our democracy and our values, we're ultimately challenging their legitimacy, or they're challenging the their ideology. That if we, you know, point out human rights violations, which are part of our values, well, if we're noticing what they've done to the their Muslim minority, you know, that, they're not very happy about that. So we have this notion that Soft culture is a, a soft power is a way for countries to sort of influence each other. But our soft power, the things that we believe in, the things that you know shape our, our movies, our television shows, our music contain a lot of seeds of stuff that are very problematic for an authoritarian regime. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think what we've seen over the past 30 years is that the more contact between the two countries has created a lot of irritants in the relationship, particularly irritating to the Chinese who are so very vulnerable in terms of their ideology and all the rest of it. And what they've done is they've helped us avert democracy here, which returns us back to the joy of uh, foreign election interference. They haven't been quite as as obnoxious on that score as as the Russians and as key actors within the American political community, such as Robert F. Kennedy. Yeah. uh but they're the chinese and the russians have an interest in undermining democracy and so the populist movement that's going on around the world that certain parties in canada might be trying to take advantage of are aimed at undermining institutions democratic institutions and so china's part of that and so this did go on during the cold war but i we had a greater unity in a lot of different areas uh and we also didn't have as much media so it was harder for the Definitely. Russians, the Soviets to to penetrate our, our media space, they did, but not as much as we feared. I mean, the whole red scares were all about the possibility that the Soviets shaping our education systems and all the rest of it wasn't really a threat. These days, it does seem to be a little more significant. Uh, our, our, our buddy, J.C. Boucher, has been studying exactly this stuff, showing the patterns of, of anti-vax hesitancy, Mm -hmm. Uh, and and disinformation there and other forms of disinformation coming through Russia, coming through key actors within North America.
1: Yeah, it's quite fascinating, this whole notion of the convergence and that that soft power. And I I guess we have had that expectation that if we do things in this realm, that will bias or leverage our ability to, to do something in another realm. Whereas I think the opposite really has happened with China, that they have become sort of more siloed in their... In a way in their approach to like economics is economics and all, although they would be offended by some of the stuff we do socially and culturally they it's like they, they they're just kind of standalone issues what happens economically stays it's an economic issue it's and you know there's just little crossover i guess in terms of that convergence of of realms whereas i think we have expected that it would happen in a way and, and it has happened with, as you were saying, the anti-vax and other issues sort of all being rolled into one big major storm. Indeed.
0: Uh,
1: It's time for us to
0: move on and get to the the hard work that you do, associate deaning and and me going back to uh, writing stuff. So uh, in our next segment, we're talking to Thomas Hughes. I had an interview with Thomas Hughes. He's our CDSN postdoc for this year. That is he is a recently finished PhD who spent last year working with a team out in Manitoba on Arctic security issues. So you'll hear me uh, interviewing him. I talked to him a couple of weeks ago and we'll be talking to you, Aaron, sometime in the near future about the next set of issues that crop across your, our desks. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Aaron, good luck with the fall.
1: Thank you so much. You have a good fall too, Steve.
0: Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. We're here with Thomas Hughes, who has spent the past year as the Canadian Defense and Security Networks postdoc. Thomas, tell us a little about uh, your background, what brought you to the CDSN, and then we can talk about what you've been doing the past year.
2: Morning, yes. So in terms of my most recent background, I uh, received my PhD from Queens University a couple of years ago, working with Dr. Stephanie von Klatke, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, and prior to that, I was at the University of Denver in uh, Colorado, the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies, um, studying for my master's. And so I came into CDSN uh, really after finishing my PhD and, and doing some uh, further work at, at Queens University. And. I've been having a fantastic time, frankly. Uh, It's been really, really good fun. It's been a wonderful opportunity to continue my research uh, and help me build some connections and, and build a bit more of an understanding of where we go next.
0: Excellent. So tell us about your project. What is it you've been spending your time on this past year?
2: Cool. So before I I dive straight into the the, the project, it's worth talking about uh, the background at at Queens and and what I was studying for my PhD. Uh, Really, that research was around threat perception. So what I was looking at was um, how military exercises were conducted in Europe and, and how Russia and the Soviet Union and NATO understood the military exercises that others were conducting. Essentially, what made them think that There was a problem and and which exercises were just seen as a normal pattern of military activity. And as I was coming towards the end of that uh, process, I was put onto the Arctic, really. And I I started to think about what was happening in the Arctic a little bit more closely because it it felt like there was a lot of hand-waving going on about tensions rising in the Arctic and... Things are getting more difficult in the Arctic and the Arctic is no longer a zone of peace. All of these sorts of comments were were coming through, but there was very little indication from what I could see of what we were actually worried about in the Arctic and what concerns there really was. I mean, there was very obviously the concerns around climate change and the impact that that was going to have on communities in the Arctic and elsewhere. And there was discussion about whether climate change was going to lead to more shipping in the Arctic. and economic opportunities and those sorts of questions. But that didn't really get to the heart, from my perspective, of rising tensions in the Arctic. What were we actually looking at here? So for the last 12 months or my my, my postdoc, I I dived a little bit more deeply into what military activity we're actually seeing in the Arctic to start with. I'm trying to build an idea and a a picture of, of when we talk about the increase in military activity, what are we actually talking about in this context? What are we seeing at? And is it hyperbole? Are we actually just seeing a spotlight being put onto activities that have been going on for, for a long time? Or are we seeing something that's actually new and dangerous? And from there, um, then the reason I, I mentioned my PhD is that I think it's really important to build up that that second section, if you like, around the threat perception in the Arctic. So taking that baseline of, of what's happening, what's occurring, what's everyone doing, um, how is... Russia approaching the Arctic? How's Canada? What about NATO and and their new emphasis on the Arctic? And then uh, expanding that further to say, well, what is actually everyone thinking about when they see these activities in the Arctic? And it's been a fascinating process.
0: Well, let's dig into that a little more. I have often considered myself to be an Arctic security skeptic, which is that I'm not really all that concerned about Russian investments on their side of the Arctic because they have a large border to protect uh, and getting over to our side of the Arctic for what purpose? There was always something that confused me. And then everybody talks about China as being a threat in the Arctic. And, and I just don't think that China has that credibility to cause that much tsunami trouble Besides so launching an occasional balloon, which again, shows that whole lot of real threat. So tell me on a, a, a scale of zero, being Steve, being completely agnostic about threats in the Arctic, to rob hubert the russians are coming across the arctic (laughs) any moment now where do you fit and, and and can you identify what are the the most significant threats and what are the most overblown threats
2: so uh as so often the case i sit squarely on the fence so i think answering that question and and responding to your position around not really seeing the threat in the Arctic is the function of what I was trying to do over the past year and to build up, to try and work out where actually we we do sit on that spectrum. One quick point to note, uh, you mentioned China in the Arctic. Of course, a couple of weeks ago, we had great excitement because there was a Russian-Chinese naval exercise that was sort of nearly close to Alaska. And that had an awful lot of attention being paid. To it, particularly in, in the media. We were told a lot about this group of ships that were approaching the Arctic. So even if we take the position that actually this um, naval exercise doesn't actually represent any sort of threat to anyone in the Arctic, it's just Russia and China practicing together and showing that they care about the Arctic, but isn't really uh, posing a threat. The way that it's being presented to us is that it is a threat. And you read the articles about the US Navy going to meet this exercise or pushing ships towards it to to track it. And again, there's a lot of hyperbole around that, but it's not necessarily a different pattern from anything we've seen before. We've, We've actually seen naval exercises in a similar sort of region in the not too distant past. But I think what's important to note about that is that it's now... The emphasis is being put onto it. So I think what we're we're seeing is a greater understanding of how the Arctic. May be a region that we need to consider more closely when it comes to the military and when it comes to that threat. And I think we also need to be really careful about talking about the Arctic as a single unitary region. I'm guilty of this as as anyone, but you know uh, as well as I do, when we talk about the Arctic, it's got an awful lot of different sections, if you like. If we want to talk about Northern Europe, high north, as as it's often called in Europe, then the concept of military threat there looks, I think, very different from the, the military threat to Canada. I mean, we again, we've, we've all heard the, well, they call it a joke, but it's not really that funny, about if the first thing that we would do if the Russians tried to invade via Canada is go and rescue them. That does have some validity when it comes to, to the Canadian Arctic, but it does not have validity when it comes to Northern Europe. I and mean, we can see uh, potential direct military threat in that region. And again, I think that's where it gets very interesting with uh, Sweden and Finland joining NATO, because that adds a new dimension of military interaction. And that makes it even more important to look at how Russia understands the concept of threat in the Arctic, because now they're seeing NATO in the Arctic to a greater degree, that is going to ch- change how they approach Arctic defence. So in terms of whether I anticipate there being a shooting war in any region of the Arctic in the near future, no, I, I don't think it's going to happen. Do I see China um, using the Arctic as a traditional military threat? No, again, probably not. But I think we need to be very careful about how we think about surveillance and what China might be able to do uh, in the Arctic in terms of intelligence activities. And we also need to be prepared and understand the simple reality that Russia also sees significant areas of the Arctic as a region in which military conflict Could occur, and because of that, it's really important that we keep thinking about it.
0: Okay, so we should keep thinking about it. What does that mean in terms of what you think policymakers should do about it? Canadian policymakers, particularly since if the threat's really to the waters off of Norway and Finland, then what is it for us to care? What what should Canada be doing?
2: Well, I think just to start with, we have to acknowledge the NATO connection and we have to acknowledge Canada's uh, responsibility to its allies and and partners in Europe. And so if something does occur uh, off the the Norwegian coast, if Norway is in in some way attacked, for, for want of a better word, Canada is going to be involved. So the first thing I think we need to be very much aware of as Canada is what is it that we can do to support allies and partners in the Arctic if the need arises. Secondly, I think it's really important to remember for Canada that the Arctic is a a huge part of our backyard. And I think it's very important for Canada to offer a point of difference within NATO and to its partners and allies. And one of those key points of difference that Canada has is the Arctic. So what cold weather capability can Canada provide? That is going to require not only the traditional military capability, but I think particularly when we think about the the new concept of multi-domain operations, pan-domain operations, is understanding how the military works alongside civilian agencies in defence and security matters. And when it comes to the Arctic, the military at the moment in in Canada is going to have a significant amount of responsibility, I think, for anything that that occurs in terms of disaster response uh, in the Arctic. So Canada needs to make sure that it remains at the forefront of cold-weather operations. That it it can continue to um, support those operations, that it can t- continue to support partners. That's going to require continued training. Uh, it's going to require investment in cold weather capability. And I know that's a not a, a sort of word that that people like in terms of Canadian defence. We've got to, we've got to invest. We have, and fundamentally, I think we also need to spend a significant amount of time actually thinking. I know it's easy to to dive into. And what we should buy and, and what we should do. But I think we actually need to spend a lot of time thinking about what we understand to be going on. Because I think charging bullheaded into developing capability without understanding how it might impact the perception of other countries and how it might impact how we engage with partners as well as potential adversaries is going to be really important. And finally, a part of that as well is developing domain awareness. Um, that's going to be really important. We know that activity in the Arctic is ticking up, um, whether military and and non-military, and it's really quite difficult to get a a real handle on what's occurring in the Arctic. But I think that probably, if I'm going to say where DND's dollars should be going towards, I would suggest that that probably surveillance right now is the first point. And from there, we need to move on to, again, like I say, really think about what our policy should be.
0: So I guess one of the questions you sort of hinted at is that how much does the Canadian military want to spend its time up in the Arctic and buying?
2: cold weather stuff so that's a it's a really difficult question to answer and I think what we've seen from the Canadian military over the past few years that it's not unique in this but the real challenge as I've, I've said before I think is that we're in this sort of short blanket scenario we can't cover our, our feet and our shoulders at the same time so we're going to have-
0: <laughs> short blankets I like that that's that's perfect
2: it's, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. And I think we've all had that terrible nighttime experience where we have to choose between two extremes. And this is going to be it for for the Canadian Armed Forces. We, we know that we cannot do everything. Uh, that's, that's just the reality. And it? it's the reality for for most militaries. So then the decision point comes is what is it that we should be looking at in terms of our expertise? And that comes back, I think, to, to my previous point about what where's Canada's point of difference? What is it that Canada can do, can offer? to its allies and partners that nobody else can can offer. And there's a number of different routes that Canada could, could go down there. And But with that in mind, I would suggest that the Arctic is is not a bad one. The Arctic is a reasonable opportunity there, simply because it is such a significant part of Canada's geography. It is a significant part of Canada's defence relationship with the United States in North American continental defence context. And and again, we know that the Arctic is being looked at significantly more. And with that in mind, I think it's really important that Canada can ensure that it, it can operate to the greatest extent possible in the Arctic. And like I say, when we think about Canada in terms of not just itself, but with its allies and partners, understanding that we're going to overlap in terms of capabilities to a certain extent, but we also need to make sure that we have complete coverage and Cold weather um, seems to me like a great opportunity for Canada to provide that point of difference.
0: I guess you think that we should spend a lot of money on modernization?
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, even even think-
0: if there's nothing we can do about it, you know, that is, you know, all those fast things, if I'm flying over our heads at hypersonic speeds, we're not going to be able to do anything about it. But we should still be able to track them and, and know that we're going to die, but we can't do anything about it.
2: Well, it's really important if we you know we have to make sure we can know we're going to die otherwise the the last thing that we're going to do just gets gets swiped off the table, doesn't it? So I think it is important that we know when the missiles coming. but no, I, I think NORAD modernization is incredibly important, but is perhaps not quite as important for the reasons that you just brought up. I think that the concept of the existential threat, the, the missile coming across the, the, the North Pole, that exists. We need to ensure that we are aware of the threats, that we can do at least something to try and counter those threats. But I think it's also, first of all, a political point. Again, this is about engaging with the United States. NORAD is an incredible military command. It's absolutely unique, as you know. And I think it's going to continue to be important that Canada... Is Is involved in that. And to continue to be involved in that and to be a valued partner, it needs to invest. Uh, We need to see investment in it. So I think that's the the first point. That's a sort of political point rather than practicality. But the second point is that I, I think we need to also be aware of NORAD's maritime warning mission as well. So NORAD, I think, is going to have a very interesting future. And there are going to be questions asked again. I mean, we've seen these questions in the past, but they're going to be asked again about what NORAD's role is in terms of threat detection and prevention. And that is going to require domain awareness that goes beyond simply the hypersonic threats and the missile threats. So if North American continent is going to be defended from threats which can emanate from or through the Arctic, then NORAD is going to be at the forefront of that. And if Canada is not at the forefront of NORAD in that context, then that point of difference disappears from Canada. So I think NORAD modernization is is hugely significant. We also need to think about how we want to modernize it. Again, not just those those anti-missile threats. what does the threat to the North American continent look like now, and um, what can NORAD do to detect those threats before they manifest themselves?
0: Okay, let's change the topic a little bit. So a lot of people don't know what a postdoc is, Mm-hmm. What have you been doing with the CDSN that is part of your postdocness?
2: Sure. So I've been really lucky. I think the, the first thing to say, like like a, a PhD and um, with the postdoc, the probably the most important thing is your supervisor. And so I've been working with Dr. Andrea Chiron and she has been absolute superstar. And so she's been really sort of guiding me through and helping me develop my research around the Arctic at its absolute baseline and <clears throat> at the moment. It's putting together a database of Arctic military activities and exercises, and that will form the foundation for articles and hopefully further interviews and presentations and the like going forward. At the same time, the, the postdoc has been fantastic in giving me the space to develop my research agenda and to try and get my name uh, out into the world, as it were. Having come straight out of the PhD, it's it's really quite A challenge as you know to get a a job a full-time permanent job with universities and it's it's quite difficult also to to know what the trajectory of your research can be and what opportunities you have to engage in it so the postdoc has provided me with fantastic space to develop that research profile and to start to really build up a a network of contacts which hopefully will help me going forward um, and I can continue to work with the fantastic people that I've ended up meeting this year that I would never have met had I not been able to to engage through CDSN
0: well excellent but it worked out for you and you are also a victim of the CDSN book workshop which is not always a postdoc but it has happened to you uh absolutely tell us what that experience was like having
2: a bunch of people scrub you and your book with a wire brush it was um Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Raw. It was good. It was really, really good. So one of the challenges I think I I've, I've found coming out of the PhD is that the, lots of people are saying, now you need to turn your, your PhD into a book. Like, yeah, great. Cool. No problem at all. I'll just slap a front cover on it make a snazzy title and submit it to a publisher. And there's lots of different advice that you find online. You go and talk to folks about how to turn your PhD into a book. And all of it is tremendously well-meaning and not all of it is particularly helpful because everyone's different. And I spent some time going around at at conferences, speaking to publishers. And essentially the, the response that I received from lots of publishers was, that sounds interesting, send me a prospectus. And that is okay, but it's also, again, fairly unhelpful. Um, It's hard to know what it is that you actually need to do to to turn that PhD into a book. So CDSN uh, was extremely good, extremely kind in putting on the book workshop for me, which allowed me to um, take my scrubbed up PhD and my first faltering efforts to turn it into a, a proper book and submit it to a bunch of really uh, August individuals and um, to to have a look through and let me know what they what they thought of my analysis and and my efforts to to change that that PhD into a book. So we sat down for for a day and I took a good hard kicking and it was brilliant. Um, I got fantastic feedback from from everyone and hopefully um, my book is now in much better shape than it was before. I've managed to make I wouldn't call them just tweaks. We've made some fairly fundamental changes, but it was all in. Good spirit and i'm really looking forward to the next stage of that process hopefully i'll be submitting that to the publisher in the very very near future I'm pretty much there with that
0: remind us what the book is about
2: sure so the book um is in two parts really it's it's around military exercises in europe fundamentally it's about understanding as i said from the phd what was it that made nato the soviet union and russia upset when the other was was running exercises and what i discovered which i think is really exciting but hopefully everyone else will can't guarantee it, but I think it's really exciting, is that actually what upset NATO about Russian and Soviet exercises was different to what upset Soviet Union and Russia about NATO's exercise? And so the book really explores where those differences come from, and what is it about certain exercises that that were a problem. So ultimately, what what I found was that NATO got really upset when Soviet Union and Russia didn't follow the rules as they should have done, because we have these set of rules around how you construct and, and conduct exercises, and when Russia and Soviet Union sort of played around the edges of those rules. NATO got really upset, in my opinion, because they really value the predictability and transparency. That's a huge part of how NATO understands how to create security and stability. For the Soviet Union and Russia, on the other hand, they were much more concerned about NATO just fundamentally being this alliance on their their next door neighbor, next to them. So what concerned Russia and Soviet Union around NATO wasn't just the big exercises, wasn't just this capability that NATO had, but it was the fact that the alliance was seen to be coming together and the alliance was seen to be a holistic and, and strong organisation. So even when you saw some really quite small exercises in terms of numbers, um, when they were conducted close to, to Russia and, and involved a, a large number of NATO partners, then Russia seem to express greatest concern. But the key part of this, the second part of the book, if you like, is is looking at this concept of transparency. I mentioned that with how NATO understood Russia and and the Soviet Union, because with exercises in Europe, they all have to take place within this framework of of rules called confidence building measures, which have been around for um, 50 years or so now. And the second part of the book looks at Uh, How those rules developed? How did all of the parties to this regime understand the value of transparency? And how did they try and use this regime um, to advance their own security goals? And what I find is that essentially, everyone was being a little bit naughty when they were suggesting that actually they were playing nicely.
0: Speaking of playing
2: naughty versus playing
0: nicely, how does that work on exercises go back and and, and apply to your example of the Russian or Chinese playing footsie off of Alaska?
2: Yeah, and so what's really interesting about this is that there aren't any rules when it comes to that region. At least they're, they're not the same set sort of framework of rules as we see in Europe. There are think, sort of broader rules. So... Here, what, what I think is, is interesting is the degree of newness of this activity. So the question for me is, are we seeing a different pattern of activity with Russia and China here? And from the response that we have seen, the suggestion appears to me to be, yes, we are. This is something which is new. And this is something which is essentially suggesting a change status quo in the Arctic. Again, back to your question, the actual extent of the threat that that suggests is perhaps a more open question. But the direction of travel seems to be we need to understand a new degree of alignment in the Arctic. I'm a little bit more sceptical of that. I think that there has perhaps been more smoke than fire in this case. I think it's occurred at a time when we are uh, having, for very obvious reasons, much Uh, harder discussions about China and Russian foreign, Chinese and Russian foreign policy. And like I said, we have seen some of these exercises, similar exercises in the past. But the fact that Russia and China are doing it now, that they have pushed towards some international borders or boundaries suggests, I think, that we're seeing a a new environment. And that is the one that's going to really trouble NATO and the US and and Canada. And that, again, comes back to, to what I was saying before. This is the imperative for Canada is to actually sit down and think about how we understand these changes and how we're going to respond to these changes without resulting it's simply in an escalation spiral.
0: Well, I really appreciate that. That's a super helpful perspective on this. Uh, I'm glad that the CSN has been able to support your work and that
2: you're stuck with us from now on uh, as part of our community. We look forward to bumping into you at the various events. CDSN has been absolutely fantastic and I want to thank you and Melissa and all of the other folks at CDSN because the degree of support that I've had through this process has been fantastic. I've, I've heard other people talk about postdocs where they're sort of just launched off and on the on their own and told just carry on with with whatever you're doing and we'll speak to you in a year but my experience with CDSN has been fantastic. The, the, the support that I've had and the, the, the doors that CDSN has opened for me uh, um, and along with Dr. Sharon has just been superb. So the next cab off the rank, a CDSN postdoc is is going to be really lucky.
0: Well, fantastic. And we'll be having Brian Atkinson on sometime later this spring or summer to talk about his experiences. he just started his uh, year as a postdoc by hanging out at our Summer Institute. Anyway, glad to have you. It's been a pleasure uh, hanging out with you uh, over the past year. Good luck in all the things to come. And thanks for being on the podcast. Not at all. Thanks
2: for having me.